I'd like to describe something that for most of us is going to sound like a nightmare, but there's a group out there, the Pentagon, for whom this would be the ultimate dream. Of course, it's a weapon, a small handheld weapon that a soldier could take in their hands and walk into a marketplace or walk into any battlefield. It would be two kilotons of explosives. But not just that, it's a gamma ray weapon. If you're close enough, it'll completely disintegrate you. But even if you're behind lead or concrete walls and you're exposed to this, you will get sick within days and die. This weapon is based on the hafnium isotope 178. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, hi. Now it's important to note, we are not in the bunker right now, Lee. We are not in the bunker. We're not even in Toronto or in Canada. We're in an undisclosed location. Outside of an American Air Force base. That's right. Voluntarily, I might add. Yes, uh, so far at least. <laughs> but there's even something better. Yes, because here's the thing. In order to talk about this weapon that Lee described, we're going to have to get into some nuclear physics. And Lee, how would you assess your understanding and knowledge of nuclear physics? Uh, it's terrible. I mean, we're philosophers and political scientists. What are you asking me? I have no idea nuclear physics. I will say there was an episode of WKRP, which we have both seen. That's right in which a character named Venus Flytrap does a pretty good explanation of what the atom is. Yep. I can give you the basic of the atom in two minutes. And that is about where we sit as far as our understanding. That's exactly right. So we're in a lot of trouble if we try to understand this, this strange hand grenade that you've discussed. Yep. Except we're not. Because... Because in this room... Right now... Right now... Sitting right across from us... The host of My Nuclear Life... An excellent podcast. Everybody should listen to it. Dr. Shelley Lesher. Yay! Hello! In real life. She's right here. She could reach over and poke you right in the eye. Or slap Ow. you, yeah. Yeah. All right, so hello, Shelley. Hi, thanks for having me. Always happy to have you here because you bring, uh, what's the word? A knowledge and reason and expertise. That's just one word. But yes, fine. I can't, you can't I'll just take any of them. You can't just apply one word to Shelley's oh, broad range of expertise. It's like, true. So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to look at this hypothetical weapon, which the Pentagon was extremely interested in. Mm. And we are going to ask, is this weapon like a real thing or was this some kind of massive hoax boondoggle waste of money? Now, but in order to do that, we're going to need a little bit of basics. So, Shelley, I know that E equals MC square. Yes. Do you know what any of that means? I know it means that it's making the argument that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Yes. And what that is saying is that you, you can't really separate concepts of matter from concepts of energy. That ultimately we're talking about one thing, that matter and energy, uh, they are, they're not sort of two aspects of the universe. They are different articulations of the same aspect of the universe, which is energy. 
Pretty good. Pretty Ooh, good. I almost want to take the rest of the podcast off now. <laughs> so what do people need to know in a way that even people like Lee and I could understand? What are some of the things that we need to know very basically about something like the atom? Okay, so the atom is very small. How far do you want to go back? Greek? I mean, that's a good start. The I, Greeks, feel very, right? I feel very comfortable. I don't think we have to go all the way back to Anaximander. I mean, that was the question. Indivisible. Indivisible, exactly. Right? It, it is the, it was, the idea was it is the particle of matter that can no longer be divided. Correct. And I seem to remember this being described to me, I hope this is helpful, as if you had a stick of butter and you cut it in half, now you have half a stick of butter, cut that in half, you have a quarter, and okay, you just I'm keep going... So and going and going. Now, it was an open question for the ancient Greeks whether you end up, whether this was a process that could go on forever, or if there was a definitive end at which point you would reach that thing which was no longer divisible. And of course, you had different philosophical positions that break up on various sides of the answer to this question. Well, the and idea the that you could just go on forever produces an absurdity, and this is Zeno's paradox, right? But what both produce an absurdity in mm. a sense. That's the problem with all this fundamental stuff, right? But we again, we have an expert here. I'm just trying to give my one little thing of historical knowledge. So the atom being the, the undivisible thing. piece. Mm -hmm. So we were able to make, you know, to look into the atom and see something smaller. Because it turns out that inside the atom is the nucleus, which makes up most of the mass. And you have the nucleus, which is made up of positively charged protons, a small particle, and neutral neutrons. And then surrounding it, moving around a vast empty space, are these electrons. And the way, I mean, football fields have gotten massive now, but usually the way it was described is that you would have a sugar cube on like the 50-yard line of a football, American football field. All the good stuff is in that sugar cube. Those are your protons and neutrons. And you put that on the 50-yard line, and the electrons are orbiting around the cheap seats. So they're like way out there. Everything else is, is empty space. So that's kind of the relationship between how big the nucleus is from how big the atom is. So the nucleus is very small. Now, that's not even the smallest thing, because you can divide that, and you can look inside so inside the nucleus is the protons and neutrons. You can actually look inside the protons and neutrons. They're made up of quarks. You can go inside. So the bigger our machines get and the more energy we can produce, we can go further and further in. But that's a different podcast. So once you start getting into the protons and neutrons, you start talking about quarks. You're no longer dealing with things that have mass to them. So it's really hard to then start dividing things because you're starting to talk about quantum mechanics. So then you're starting to talk about fields. So now it's philosophy. And I, I worry if we keep going down this path, then we'll get to the point where we realize that nothing exists. And we'll do an episode in the future about the idea that all of existence is just a simulation. Okay. And perhaps we'll start from there, from the okay. fact that we can't seem to get to that fundamental building block that builds everything up, that we just keep looking further and further and keep finding tinier and tinier things. So remember in the last time you were in a classroom, not in college, but you know, high school, high school, chemistry or grade school, probably the most iconic science poster is what? Oh, it's the, it's the planetary model of the atom. Oh. I was gonna say Einstein with his tongue sticking. Oh. Okay, neither of that was what I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> we went to different high schools. You, the periodic table. There you go, oh, the okay, periodic yes, table. Okay, fine. Yes. okay, 
So the periodic table, uh, if you had a chemist on, they could tell you all about it. Mm. But I'm only interested in one thing. Okay. That is, they are arranged, okay, they're arranged in a bunch of different things and a chemist is like screaming at me right now. But basically, you need to know, uh, the, the mass number there lets you know how many protons or how many electrons are in the element, right? And as uh, Venus Flytrap told you, you have to have the same number of protons as electrons, right? Right. Okay. So that tells you what the element is and how many protons and electrons should be in that element. So hafnium has 72 electrons, okay. which means it has 72 protons. Okay. So hafnium, by definition, is going to have 72 protons. Okay, because it's number 72 on the periodic table. Correct. And that's what that means. That's what decides that, that it's hafnium or that it's hydrogen or helium or yep. plutonium or and whatever so the element is. Hydrogen has one? Yes. Yep. Helium is two. <laughs> Hydrogen's one. But, okay, let's, let's just look at hydrogen because it's the easiest because yeah. you have one proton. Okay. And zero neutrons. What happens if you have hydrogen, one proton, but you add a neutron? Is it still hydrogen? Yes, yes, because it just tracks the Proton. protons. But now you have a neutron. Okay. It's deuterium or deuteron. Which is like a heavy yeah. hydrogen. Yeah. Okay. But now you can have, you can add a second neutron. Is it still hydrogen? Yes. Because it only has one proton. Yes. That's tritium. Okay. But there is a limit to how many neutrons you can add. But you can, add, you can okay. keep adding neutrons. Okay. As long as you have one proton, it's still hydrogen. Okay. And you can keep adding neutrons because they have a neutral charge? Yes. Okay. And it does not change the element that you're talking about. Okay, got it. Okay, now let's go to hafnium. Hafnium. Hafnium has 72 protons. Okay. What we are talking about is hafnium-178. If you just say hafnium, it's just hafnium. But Stable hafnium is hafnium 176, 177, 178, 179, and 180. Okay. So isotopes are nuclei that have the same protons but different neutrons. Okay. Got it. I'm teaching a philosopher nuclear physics. Yeah. So elements are fundamental building blocks of the universe. Basically, they're the kinds of atoms that there are. And every molecule is constructed of atoms, and then all of the matter that we interact with is made up of molecules. There's no such thing as a water atom, for example. Water is a molecule made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Then hydrogen and oxygen are both elements. And we categorize elements by the number of electrons that they have in their atoms. And depending on how many electrons and protons and neutrons an element has, it will have different characteristics. Yeah. And the element hafnium, which has 72 electrons, has some qualities that make it interesting to some people who would like to build terrifying weapons. There's another thing that is interesting about hafnium, which is, I talked about how some hafnium is stable, yeah. meaning that it doesn't decay. Okay. So it'll just sit there forever. And by decay, we're thinking about like nuclear radiation. like Yeah, like... radioactive decay. Okay. So it's not going to emit an alpha particle or a beta, or which are just electrons. It's not going to emit anything. It's just going to like... It's just sit there. Just going to sit there forever. Right. Stable. So an unstable element is one that is charged up with too much energy, which then throws off excess energy as radiation until it's a stable form again. Some elements like uranium don't have a stable form or isotope, so they're always leaking some amount of radiation. But hafnium isn't like that. There are some isotopes of hafnium that are totally stable. Now, what an isomer is, is 
the chemists call it a metastate. Now it took me, I was well past my PhD before I realized that what chemists called a metastate was actually an isomer because they're weird. Okay. So what happens is this decay, uh, this, you know, kind of raining down of these gamma rays happen quite quickly, like picoseconds, nanoseconds. Like a nanosecond. How quick is a nanosecond? Yeah. Okay. We build, we build special detectors to look at it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Every once in a while, something happens where you have a decay that takes longer. Okay. A second. For oh. us, a second's long. That's a long time. Right, right, right. Compared to a nanosecond. Compared yeah. to a nanosecond, if something takes a second, then you're like, whoa, what happened there? Okay. That means there's a second almost ground state. Hmm. Now, what makes hafnium-178 interesting is there are two metastates. So there's like, you got a triple-decker bunk bed. You got like hmm. a triple bed. Okay. Um, and that's why the one that we're interested in is 178M2. The two denotes the second metastate. Okay. So normally when you increase the energy in an atom, they become unstable and they release that energy again almost immediately through radiation. But there are some elements that you can increase the energy that they have and instead of releasing again to return to their normal resting state, they become stable at a higher resting state, and that's an isomer. So the first one has an energy of 1.14 MeV, which is million of electron volts. Okay. That takes four seconds. That's not interesting. That's pretty normal isomer. The second one, though, is at 2.446 MeV, which is millions of electron volts. That isomer is 31 years. 31 years. 31 years. As I said, most isomers are very short, milliseconds, seconds. This one's 31 years. That's a gigasecond. That is a gigasecond. So that's extraordinarily stable. That is extraordinarily stable. So you could, you could basically, you could charge it up and it stays charged. Yes. Okay. Rather than immediately leaking out that extra charge. Exactly. Okay. The other thing that's very interesting about this is that the energy, it's at 2.446 MeV. That is very high in energy. It's a lot of energy. Okay. One of the things about these different substances is that some atomic substances are easier to encourage than others to give up the energy that they're like holding on to. Uranium is mildly radioactive. It's, it slowly leaks energy in the form of radiation. And uranium is extremely plentiful in nature. It's all over the place. Mm -hmm. But in order to ready it so that it's used to you know, produce nuclear fission power, it requires a lot of very technical preparation. Uh, you have to separate the uranium atoms from the ore that you find it in because it's, you know, it's kind of messed up. There's other ores that are sort of mixed up in it. And then you have to increase the percentage of the uranium-235 isotope in the uranium sample. Yes. Again, that's where the isotopes come in. The uranium-235 isotope is more willing to give up its energy. And I know I'm, I'm like assigning like intention to these atoms when they don't have them, but it just makes it easier for me to talk about it. It does. And the reason it's willing to give it up is because we coax it with a neutron. So when we put the neutron in, it becomes uranium-236, and Ooh. then it naturally fissions. Because then it's, it's, it's like busting. Yeah. It's like, I've got to, this is too much. I got I to gotta release this energy. Yeah, because it's energetically not stable. 
Okay, so it's like... And it's got to just break apart. So it is like, it is hyper-caffeinated at this point. Yes. Okay. Yeah. See, now we're, now we're speaking in metaphors that I can kind of understand. Matter and energy, I mean, fundamentally are the same thing, but like matter is not ordinarily that interested in releasing itself as energy in the way that we could use it. No. So we got to work really hard, but what if there was a substance that was more willing to release its energy? You could like maybe encourage it to release it in a trickle and it could power a steam turbine and we could get we could get power that way. You could generate electricity, you could release it faster and propel spacecraft. Or because we're human beings and we're the worst, we could get it to release all at once and create a new and terrible bomb. Now, isn't that a nuclear bomb? Ah. Isn't that what you're talking about? See, that this is how we have in the past convinced atoms to release that energy is through fusion or fission. Yes, mm -hmm. but they don't release it all. It's very no. Right, they inefficient. just release a small part of it. Yes. The amount of energy that is in atoms is impossible to for me to imagine. Like we, we were talking about this off the air. We think of chemical energy. If I have a match and I strike that match and I light it, then I'm using not the atomic energy, but the molecular uh, energy of, of chemistry to, you know, create fire. And that's kind of impressive. I light a match and boom, there's a little bit of flame. But if we were able to harness the nuclear energy in that same tiny matchstick, we are not going to do the math right now, but that would be a considerably greater amount of energy released. It's an amazing amount. Like a ridiculously larger amount. Like, I'm just making up something here, but it would be the difference between lighting a fire and destroying a city. <laughs> Right? I mean, just yes. so that we get a like, sense it, of like it, what as far as kind of goes, scale yeah. we're talking like, about. Yeah. The difference um, between chemical energy and, and nuclear energy, is, it's not comparable. Right. We're many orders of magnitude yeah. uh, different. And so how frustrating is that then, as a physicist, to know all that energy, it's, it's right there. I'm okay. Oh, she's okay with it. Right. But if you wanted to make weapons, how frustrating would right. it be to know that all that energy was right there? I mean, it would be because we can do the calculations. We know what... So there are four fundamental forces, and two of them are nuclear. Mm. But we know how much force it takes to keep the nucleus together. And if we're able to separate it, then we can use that energy because you can't destroy or create energy. So it has to go somewhere. If we can separate those nuclei then we can use that energy. That's why people keep at it, and that's why there's lots and lots of money going into it, because the potential there is unfathomable. Okay. So what if somebody found an isomer of an element that was willing, more willing, to give it up? Pray tell. And is it going to be this hafnium isomer? Despite an early interest showed by the Soviets, I haven't come across any evidence that the Soviets or after them, the Russians, were able to successfully use a hafnium isomer for some kind of power. And for the most part, the American government, they weren't devoting that many resources to studying the substance in the 60s and 70s. Things like gamma ray lasers and isomer bombs were mostly relegated at this point to the fringes of scientific inquiry. But there was one guy, one heroic visionary, who was willing to stand apart from the crowd and say, you know what, I'm not a sheep. I'm not part of this herd. I will move forward and I will bring science forward with me. And that man's name was Dr. Carl Collins. Okay. So Collins moved in an interesting crowd. 
So as part of a program to try to open up the country of Romania in the 1970s, President Richard Nixon sponsored a scientific cooperation program with them. And Dr. Collins was one of the few scientists who submitted a proposal to work with Romanian scientists in 1971 and went so far as to actually relocate to Romania. Now, I'm sure there was a lot of good Romanian scientists doing excellent scientific work. However, there was also some scientific sketchiness in the country as well. In the same way that a fish rots from the head, this was rotting from the head of the country. Because the leader of Romania at the time was Nicolae Ceausescu. Do you remember him? Not personally, but uh, I've not heard good things about him or his wife. No, terrible guy, dictator, secret police, all the usual things that we see in In, a very oppressive state. Right, in the orbit of Soviet influence. Yeah, exactly. Now, the head of Romania's National Council for Science and Technology was Elena Ceausescu, the first lady. And so that's, I mean, that's cool. We have, uh, this is Very progressive. Yeah, extremely progressive. So that seems like good news. Right. It's, it, it's not good news, though, unfortunately, because, well, I mean, it seems reasonable at first that Elena Ceausescu would be this very important uh, part of Romanian science because she had a PhD in chemistry. She had a ton of published works. She was celebrated by official state literature, world famous chemistry researcher, co-inventor on a bunch of patents. Like, it seems like this sounds person. Sounds great. Yeah, sounds fantastic. However, after the Ceausescus were overthrown and executed... In 1989, a lot of Romanian scientists came forward and claimed that they had been forced to add Dr. Ceausescu's name to their own papers and patents. And it turned out that basically her entire chemistry career and degree was borderline fraudulent. There's been a lot of modern Romanian historians arguing that her scientific knowledge was basically a hoax. And there's been a push from Romania to try to have her name retracted from her scientific works and to take back some of the prizes that she was getting from places like England and the United States. Hmm. So Collins wasn't working with Ceausescu, but he was working with a couple who appeared to have a sort of a similar drive towards academic fame and legitimacy. So according to the researcher and author Sharon Weinberger, who uh, is an excellent source on this, there were three key things to know about Collins's time in Romania. One, he had an overblown sense of the importance of what he was researching to the point of repeatedly and unsuccessfully submitting nominations for his co-researcher to receive the Nobel Prize. The second thing was that he started looking to shadowy and mysterious groups to explain his lack of scientific success. So I'm, I'm just curious, it couldn't have been because he wasn't a good scientist. I think it's entirely possible. I think it's entirely possible, that's why. But he was incapable of thinking that it was entirely possible. Why? Because of the first point, that he had a really overblown sense of the work he was doing. So these type of men in physics have been around forever. Oh yeah, there's definitely jerky people, but right. I mean, I, I but this is a specific kind of jerk. This is a very specific. Okay. This kind is a of very jerk. specific species of jerk. The one who is absolutely convinced, the true believer jerk, mm. and believes true that, believers are the worst. Yeah, and, and but, thinks that like any any lack of success they're having, somebody's got to be keeping them down. Yeah, it's not them. Right. And the third thing that was important in Romania is that he is introduced to the concept of hafnium isomers and becomes consumed with the idea that if you could just figure out how to trigger them, you could gain access to the massive amount of energy trapped inside the material. So when the program ends in the early 1980s, Collins moves back to the States and what seemed like a misfortune that he lost some of his funding and he wasn't able to conduct experiments in Romania anymore was actually excellent timing. Because just as he comes back to the States, there is a massive, mind-bogglingly expensive new project being started by the American government that Collins was going to get a piece of 
the Strategic Defense Initiative, a.k.a. Star Wars. Star Wars. For most of the Cold War, the thing that was theoretically protecting us all from complete annihilation, of course, was the threat of complete annihilation. Because we had... Bombs! Yeah, everyone had bombs. Well, both sides had bombs. Mutually assured destruction. So, mutually assured destruction was particularly true when the Soviets and Americans switched from relying on bombers, which you could theoretically shoot down, you could intercept, and started using intercontinental ballistic missiles, which were too fast to intercept. So now we've got basically a war of offense with no defense possible. But when Ronald Reagan's elected as president in 1980, he wanted to take things in a different direction. He wanted the Department of Defense to create a space-based system of lasers, or particle beams, or, you know, some kind of uh, energy weapon, or something. Something that you could put in space that could shoot incoming enemy ballistic missiles out of the sky before they could rain radioactive horror on American targets. I see nothing wrong here. We can just move on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, this is going to work great. We could have maybe X-ray lasers powered by nuclear explosions. We could have hypervelocity rail guns. We could have something called brilliant pebbles, which is kind of the way it sounds, where you have these satellites over the Soviet Union filled with... Marbles. Uh, yeah, basically really? marbles. And then when somebody fires off an ICBM, you explode the satellite and you shoot the marbles down at the ICBM and you destroy it before it gets into your airspace. Which sounds like a stupid idea, but were people recent- high? Well, somewhere. It does sound like a dumb idea. But then just recently the Webb telescope encountered a micrometeor, right? And it was like a big problem and it's a big problem for anytime NASA does a mission with all this stupid space junk. So, yeah, you can't throw like little pebbles of stuff. Yeah, but, but it's you, hard to aim those pebbles. Uh, That's you know, the no, no, you, you get lots. You get so lots. You just fill the entire sky. That's with right. Pebbles. You rain pebbles down on you the. You just rain pebbles down on the missiles. I, I mean, what brilliant. we're pointing out here is that in the 1980s, there was no idea that was too wild <laughs> yeah. to be considered part of this Star Wars initiative. So it started in the 80s that there was no idea that was too wild? No, it it went... Be, I mean, basically throughout the Cold War, there, there was no go. idea that yeah. was too wild, but particularly but with Star now Wars. Now we had the tech to do it. Yeah. So Collins, Carl Collins pitches the idea. He's like, no, I'll tell you how to shoot down those ICBMs. Uh-huh. An isomer-powered grazer. A grazer? He had a donut like a, idea? Or a cow? A gamma-ray laser. A gamma there's actually a bunch of different terms. Uh, people normally say gamma ray laser to avoid the chaos and confusion that okay. just happened here. Right. So Collins pitches this idea. The Pentagon, not surprisingly at all, totally into it. Yeah. Take my money. They're all over it. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing when you're, you're getting into some wild science. There's two reasons why the Pentagon would be super interested in like this frontier absurd stuff. One, if you were doing it and the Soviets weren't and it worked, you get a great advantage. And two, if you weren't doing it and the Soviets were, you were screwed. So it was fear-driven. It was fear-driven and it was also power-driven. Well, and DARPA's always been high risk, high reward. Yeah. That's that's the whole thing with the DARPA grant. You go for DARPA, you only go if you know you have this crazy-ass idea that might work. You got to make a distinction between stuff that has an outside chance of working and stuff that simply cannot work. Like no matter how great of an idea it is. Okay. But I think this is where his overblown ego comes in. Right. 
is overblown, there's two things that come in, and that's what we'll get into now, because you're asking this question, it's like, why was anybody believing it? You know who wasn't as into it? The scientific community. The other scientists argued that the math didn't make sense, Collins' methods were sloppy, the physics were full of, like, really immense gaping holes. And Collins would point out that, well, no, these, these people are just trying to discredit my work so that they could pitch their own ideas, or because they're afraid of, you know, my genius, basically. And so while the, the scientists uh-huh. are, are just saying, well, this stuff is nonsense, Collins didn't have to sell it to the scientists. He has to sell it to the Pentagon. And the Pentagon was into it, and he would tailor his explanations so that the Pentagon would be more likely to, to uh, buy into it. We've all seen one of the slides that was used to try to convince the Pentagon, and it's brilliant, and I want it up on my wall. I think Collins must have thought to himself, what do these generals understand? Golf. And explosions. And explosions. And so there was, this, there was this amazing slide showing somebody hitting a golf ball, the golf ball arcing into the air and landing with basically a mushroom cloud. So Collins was meeting with these Pentagon generals and telling them that he could put the power of the sun into something as small as a golf ball. And it worked. Collins received millions of dollars of the Star Wars funding. And apparently he was extremely charismatic. And you would think that charisma shouldn't matter in science, because charisma has nothing to do with the worth of your hypotheses. Well, people are still people. Yeah. And if you want funding, and you have to pitch your ideas, like writing it on paper is one thing, but if you ever have to pitch your ideas, then yeah. Yeah, charisma. You a need part to of sell it. Yeah. And most of the time, like if you're in a national lab, you have to pitch your ideas. You've got to go talk to someone in charge and say, "This is what I want to do." And also, I mean, you're at a university. Who gets? You know, like who do students like? Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. People, so it's all about how you present yourself and how. I mean, also, there are so many people that don't know anything about what they're talking about, but they talk about it with such passion confidence. And, com- and confidence that people are like, he is brilliant. I'm like, yeah. no, he's not. He's an idiot. But he acts like he's brilliant, so he's brilliant. Right. Well, there's a psychological phenomenon known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, which actually gives you the sense that you are smarter when you don't know enough about a certain subject. So when you don't know, all, as you know in your area, about all the complexities and the difficulties, and then somebody reads like some primer physics book and thinks that, well, there I've got physics now, and then they go, and precisely because they don't know how difficult the area is, they can be very confident and, and self-assured. So what, tr- what wins then? Good science or good salesmanship? Like Good what, science. But what wins at the Pentagon? Oh, uh blowing up things with golf balls yes yeah great slides great science marketing marketing yes marketing is king marketing is king and there was a lot of people who were marketing because the entire sdi program cost over thirty billion what dollars no yes I mean, I would have been outraged at $30 million, honestly. I would be like, that is a disgrace. Like, you could build a school and a hospital and what, with $30 million? With three, what, how much? $30 billion. The isomer research was $40 million, just on the hafnium. 
It's amazing. Yeah, they were they were like giving out wings. So in 1989, I mean, Collins has gotten a lot of funding, and he claimed to have successfully triggered an isomer, but it took much more energy to trigger the isomer than was released by the isomer, which is useless. Yeah, well, that's 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 proof of concept. Okay, it's not entirely <laughs> useless, but not at the point where you can use it to build something to blow up something with a golf ball. Depends how charismatic he is. Salesmanship. <laughs> In 1991, he was very charismatic because in 1991, the Pentagon builds Collins a linear accelerator in Texas. What? Yeah, to use to try to trigger uh, isomeric materials by slamming high-energy photons into them. I think they still have that linear accelerator. Well, now you know who to thank for it. No. Collins Charisma. Also in 91, though, when things are just going really well for Collins, something terrible happens. The Soviet Union collapses. Oh, no. And so now the Cold War ends, sort of. And in 1993, the SDI program is canceled by President Bill Clinton after $30 billion. And Collins' funding was cut off before he was able to produce anything useful, either practically or theoretically. And so now he's operating on a shoestring. He's still convinced that... He's this, only got $10 million now? Yeah, he's only got a few million bucks. He's convinced that he can convince that hafnium-178 isomer to give up its goods. And then... Has he tried dinner in a movie? He's tried almost <laughs> everything at this point. Some wine, some soft lighting. But then in 1998, he tries a used dental x-ray machine. Oh, is that the key? That's the key. So at this point, we will turn it over to Shelley because I have a question. And the question is, what? That, like, that's my answer. Oh, uh, well, well, so what he claims is, according to the paper that was released the next year, that he was able to trigger the hafnium isomer, with this used uh, dental x-ray machine, quote, the resonant absorption of an x-ray photon with the energy of the order of 40,000 electron volts can induce the prompt release of the 2.446 million electron volts stored by the isomer into freely radiating states. Okay. So basically he put a little bit of x-ray in and he got a ton of energy out. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, this this couch is stable. Yeah. Like it's made out of atoms which have nuclei. Tons in it. of energy in that couch. There's lots of energy here. It's all stable. If I put a Geiger counter here, nothing. It's holding on to it. Mm-hmm. it. There's nothing here. I can put a laser to it. Nothing here. Nothing's gonna happen. It's X-ray doesn't matter. So that's what I don't understand about the experiment he did. Is that hafnium one seventy eight is stable. I don't care if it has an isomer. Okay, so and this is where. Some people said, okay, well, I mean, it got a lot of press. It even made the mainstream press this experiment. Well, I'm guessing it would have gotten a lot of mainstream press, but not a lot of real interest. No, no, but it did generate some, again, some attention from the scientific community, and particularly from a group called the Jasons. Now, we've talked about the Jasons before. Like, very quickly, who were these guys, the, the Jasons? They were really smart physicists that basically came together for, like, a think tank summer camp. Yeah. And, and there and were like Nobel laureates. Like entertain the wildest ideas. Yeah. And just like, could this happen? I don't know. Let's all sit around and think about it and figure it out. No, they was... are, they're extremely like good physicists. Yeah. I mean, uh, Steven Weinberg was one of them and he won the Nobel Prize in physics. So they were all extremely talented physicists. So no, we've come the across them before. the best of the best were invited to join. And yeah. you had to be invited to join. Yeah, this is like super elite. And, and we came across them before when we looked at Project Seesaw. 
Yes, and they thought it was reasonable. Well, possible. Right, and Seesaw was about like draining all of the Great Lakes, building massive like particle accelerators, and and building essentially like a, a kind of ionizing force field across the United States. So they're not shying away from the wild stuff. No. And they responded very negatively. And so there are a couple of things that happen, and I'm not sure I wasn't able to trace the literature on this, but you do see uh, arguments happen in journals, which are always fun, where someone responds to an article and then the authors respond to the response, and you can see like these arguments go through journals. It's a flame war. It is. It's, re- it's like an old-fashioned Twitter war in mm-hmm. print that lasts over like a year because everybody has to go back and forth and wait for the journals to come out. There was a guy who wrote for the, um, it was in the American Physical Society, which is our professional society, uh, Peter Zimmerman, who wrote a few years ago about his response to this. And he was going to write a rebuttal, but was like, eh, you know, it's not even worth my time kind of thing. Um, but then he was asked to check into it. So he took his concerns to the Jasons. And he had some questions for the Jasons because he's like, right, if the Jasons say no to this idea, then everyone's going to listen to them. Mm. So he went to the Jasons and said, what is the proposed physical mechanism by which Collins claims the rate of decay is enhanced? So he wanted to know, like, look, what is the physics? Like, explain to us the physics. Is the mechanisms in, in accord with the known principles of nuclear and atomic physics? Can this happen? Right. Is it even plausible? Okay, have Collins and his co-workers actually demonstrated an enhanced decay rate of hafnium-178? That was another question. And is it likely that 178 hafnium isomeric nuclei can be produced in useful quantities within the next 20 years? And by what mechanism? So if any of that is possible, can we do it? Can it happen in the next 20 years? And... Is it likely that mechanisms to cause near simultaneously de-excitation of large numbers of hafnium-178 isomers will become practical in the next 20 years? Good. Those, Those are, are exactly very, the questions. Very reasonable questions. Very, exactly. That's what you very want people questions. in decision-making positions to ask. Yeah. So this is a scientist, went, check it out. The and end, asked other scientists. And asked other scientists. And the Jasons are the people who thought Operation Seesaw was reasonable. Yeah, the, right. The Jasons were not adverse to some wild ideas. Yes. Yeah, they were ready to like look into a lot of things. So what do you think the, the Jasons thought of all of, of this experiment? Based on what you were saying, because I think the Jasons, even though they're into guns and toys and military and stuff like this, are still fundamentally scientists. They are. Very, I would very say good they fact, do. They, they the answer to every one of those questions is no. Correct. Yeah, there's no clear evidence that the experiment had even triggered the hafnium. Uh, there was no mechanism to create the chain reaction needed to produce the explosion. There was no feasible method to produce a, a suitable amount of hafnium isomer. They said the experiment itself was poorly designed and executed, and if you did build a small hafnium bomb, it would produce about 2,000 curies of radiation even before it exploded, which wouldn't be healthy for the person holding it. A curie is a lot. Okay. Yeah, so 2,000 curies is 2,000 a lot? Now, instead of just a lot, you have a shit ton. Right. Yeah, and you're holding it. And you're right. holding it. You're dead. Yeah, right. you're a goner. You're dead. I mean, this is then when good science comes in and takes what seem like logical connections and shows them to actually be spurious appearances that 
that appeared right but are actually wrong. Doesn't make sense. The Earth is not flat. It's a sphere. It's very complicated. You have to explain that. But if you presented it to someone who knows nothing about science yeah. and you just said that, that's is, where the key is. This right? is the problem. Okay. Because, so the scientific that's community. That's the ethics then. That's, yes, that's well, the ethics. That's when you're just like, why would you do that? Because that is so unethical. That's not the way things work. Because yeah, of lots and lots of money. money. It is because, you know, what happens after the Soviet Union collapses is that there's no more jobs for physicists. Mm. No one's getting their PhD in nuclear physics anymore because where's anyone going to go? Hmm. The weapons programs aren't as big anymore. The Pentagon's not giving money for nuclear weapons anymore. The Star Wars, Wars is canceled. Star Wars is canceled. So physicists are going to other, other places. So if you want money as a nuclear physicist, what are you going to do? You're going to be unethical and make up stories? Well, I certainly some will. I mean, that some makes... will, exactly. But I mean, this story shows both sides. It shows that, that science is like a self-corrective mechanism when done properly, and the peer review process will point out the flaws in hypotheses. You mentioned Peter Zimmerman. Uh, he was the chief scientist at the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, uh, the one who commissioned that original Jason study. And he said about the this, this hafnium isomer bomb, other things that they didn't explain included how a soldier was supposed to hold a hafnium grenade, given that it would be fiercely radioactive, at least thousands of curies, or how anybody was supposed to be able to throw a five-pound ball far enough to survive a two-kiloton blast. <laughs> Later, others were to scale that back to two tons, but I still don't know how this grenadier was going to come out alive, even if his throwing arm weren't roasted. There were a lot of good scientists saying this is such ridiculous nonsense on so many levels. On a theoretical level, it doesn't make any sense. On a practical level, this weapon wouldn't make any sense, even if it did work theoretically. And Zimmerman thought that after the Jasons weighed in, that it was over. Yeah. Like the the Pentagon always like would always listen to the Jasons. Yes, but you know what they did instead of listening to the Jasons about this? They ditched the Jasons. So do they no longer exist now? They do, but they lost their contract with DARPA. Because of this? Not. I don't know if it was because of this, but it happened at the same time as this. Mm. So I don't know if it was the, the because of this, but Rumsfeld, who was very interested in this Collins idea, was in charge of the Defense Department at this point, and it was Rumsfeld who cancels the Jason's contract. Wow. Let's take the people that know the most about the subject... Let's get rid of them. And, and it wasn't just, the, I mean, the Jasons are impressive, but it wasn't just the Jasons who were pointing out the ridiculousness of this. Uh, there was a group of physicists at uh, Argonne. 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 There was a group of physicists at Argonne National Laboratory. Uh, they reproduced the original X-ray experiment in 2001. And this is good science, right? Reproduction. It's one of yeah. the key parts of the scientific method. Anybody should be able to run the same experiment, get the same results, or your results are called into question. Uh, and there was no triggering of the isomer when they did it. Okay, here's my question. Did they use the proper coffee cup? Uh, see, yeah, yeah, <laughs> what this color is, were the lab cups? This is the problem. And Collins <laughs> did argue, it's like, no, you didn't do it right. You didn't use the proper, like I used a used dental x-ray machine and you used this other thing. So Collins was able to come up with reasons why it didn't work. But then when they reproduced it again following his directions, it still did not work. So the whole, let's just explain the setup here. Which is, it wasn't just using a used dental x-ray machine, which is fine. We use used equipment all the time. We sure. use old equipment all the time. The accelerator that I use was built in, like, the 60s. Nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly fine. Old does not mean bad. No. But he used an overturned coffee cup as a target holder. Mm. That's not ideal. 
it's not ideal at all. Like in, I would ne in a million years I'd never use an overturned coffee cup. Like it's not good science. It's not. I I don't even. I, well, because there's going to be so many weird impurities in that coffee cup, it's going to affect the results of the experiment. You're not going to be able to measure your results properly. It's not even a new coffee cup. It's a used coffee. I, I just I can't even begin to explain how. I mean, sure, maybe if you started doing that and you saw something, you'd be like, okay, this is interesting. Why don't we now set up the experiment properly? Let's use a target holder. Let's actually see how thick our hafnium is. Because it, it was described as like a blob of hafnium. Oh, a blob. That Wait, is that not like a, a, an appropriate no. mm -mm. measure in physics, a no. blob? Mm -mm. Ah. So, but, so, so, so even if he had something at that point, he would have been like, okay, now let's actually measure the distance between the x-ray machine and the target holder. Let's measure how thick the hafnium is. Is it a foil? Is it carbon back like what's going on let's do the proper measurements how far away is the detector like let's get this all straight that's what you publish or should you just run to the press and say i've done this amazing thing that one yeah that's the one you should do if i'm if i'm channeling my collins i run to the press immediately yeah and then i tell everyone it works and like oh no you can't see it right yeah i'm and the only one that can touch this because it's so sensitive and it only works if I jiggle this and move this, right. then I'm the only one that can use it. And again, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of people who are into like paranormal research. Yeah. So at this <clears throat> point, the Jasons have said the experiment was flawed. The Argon team said they twice tried to reproduce the results and neither time did the results emerge. Dr. Lesher, clearly not on board with this. So is that the end of the hafnium isomer bomb? I mean, it should be. Is it? No, okay, I'm gonna say no, but I do know that now we're actually doing isotope research, like isotope bomb research. They just dropped the hafnium. Oh, really? So this continues in another name? Yes. Sir. Oh, wow. But the, and so the, the science is different. It's different. Right. Mm -hmm. It's different. Oh, man. It's not different. So, well, so aspiring, if there is any aspiring physicist out there, stay away from the isotope bomb research. I don't know what your goal is. Uh, to do real research. Yes. To make lots of money. Okay, if your no. goal is to do real research, stay away from the Correct. from the isomer bomb research. If you want to make money, tell them that you have done it. So why has this thing survived and continued to survive? Well, one of the psychological ticks that gets in our way when we're trying to make good decisions is the sunk cost fallacy. Mm. We've talked about this a lot. Basically, when we have a lot invested in a belief or an idea or a plan, even if it becomes clear that it's not going to work out, we're reluctant to abandon it because, I mean, of all the time, the energy, uh, the resources we put into it, particularly if we've been publicly promoting the idea, if we've been sort of associating it with ourselves, then we have the tendency to double down to try to protect ourselves from the horrifying social stigma of being wrong, of admitting that we were wrong. Did this become a religious thing? Well, it, yes, it is. It is a religious thing because we're talking about true believers here. We're talking about the reluctance of true believers to give up on an idea. Because all of that just described religion. Yes. And I think it also describes the Cohen's converts. I think that's the danger when something like like this, this, this belief, it, it becomes more important to try to protect the idea than it is to find out what the truth is. And so we're protecting ourselves from being wrong and also protecting ourselves from the even more painful realization that other people that we don't like were right. 
So despite the criticisms from respected physicists about the problems with hafnium triggering in general and this X-ray experiment in particular, the U.S. Air Force was still very interested in the idea and started funding Collins again in 1999. And there was an increasingly large gap between the scientific community and the defense establishment regarding the feasibility of triggering hafnium. And I think this also speaks to something else that we come across a lot, Lee, when we're talking about conspiracy theory, and it's the appeal of forbidden knowledge or, like, oppressed knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that is really an... I mean, it does, you're right, it comes up in a lot of different guises. I think the idea of knowing stuff that other people in positions of authority don't know can be a real... um, salve, palliative, it it certainly makes you feel very good about yourself. It undermines or or justifies why things aren't working out very well for you necessarily, you know, like they're dupes, they got they got suckered by the system, and I have to suffer because I know the real truth. And it is a very seductive idea. And it I think it's a lot behind the occult and secret societies and I don't know, even even stuff like uh, Nazi gold and hidden treasures, you know, there's there, there's this like, there is a s- secret wealth of some sort out there that um, we could access. Yeah, there's almost like a, an immense amount of energy contained in an atom. Right. We could just, if, if only we could just get could at just it. If only they were just, if they would stop preventing us from getting, you know free energy to fuel our homes. Yeah. Well, I mean, this narrative that mainstream science is trying to prevent knowledge from being circulated, it's very common in the conspiracy world. And throughout his career, Collins really leaned into that. Uh, Sharon Weinberger, who I mentioned before, who's done a lot of research, interviewed Collins in the early 2000s about the Hafnium bomb. And Collins frequently returned to the idea that the scientific establishment was trying to keep him suppressed. And there's other examples from sort of conspiracy history about this. In the 70s, there was this idea that there was this miracle carburetor that would get 250 miles per gallon. Really? Yeah, but the big three was keeping it down. Oh. In fact, somebody bought one by accident, and then the next day, a bunch of people showed up at his house and took the car away. Of course, that didn't happen. It's an urban legend, but it's such an appealing one. Right. Because, again, it leans into this oppressed knowledge. Or think about all of the people who argued that, like, vaccination was this sort of a scam by the the mainstream scientific community that was keeping down like the real proper ways of preventing right. the spread of disease or or the science behind climate change yeah exactly and, and the, the same claims being made that the scientific community is part of some large scale conspiracy mainstream conspiracy and of course it gets developed in various ways what the goal might be but that the yeah exactly this idea that the, the that scientists are somehow colluding with other groups to prevent knowledge that would help us from coming out i think that one area where there's a crossover between the absurd conspiratorial idea and where sometimes in very limited cases you can kind of see this happening is in the pharma industry mm. like where there is legitimate science, but then there's also a lot of stuff that happens in the gray area, and it does not, it's not lost on many of us that, you know, there are certain 
Well, the pushing of opioids, for example. I hope that I hope I didn't like veer off into some kind of like pseudo conspiratorial thought there myself. What I was trying to just say is like, no, what well, I was trying to do. We is, should be suspicious, of, right? But what's interesting to me is that people obviously have no idea what academia is like. You know, so many scientists are in academia, and if they knew, like, you can't get academics to agree on anything. No, of but so this, how in the world are we going to like propagate? A conspiracy when we fight over who gets the office by the window. Again, no. it's it's herding cats. That would be easier yeah. than academics. <laughs> yeah, right. Like your herding cats would be a dream. You get the same problem with the concept of government. Oh, the government. Well, it's like wait, wait a minute. How does the government actually work? It's full of different agencies that historically can't stand each other, and then there's interpersonal tensions between bosses and their higher ups, and their everybody is at each other's throats. I mean, the yeah. CIA and the FBI can't. They love nothing more than to screw each other over. And they will do it at our expense. Yeah, of course. Oh, yes, they will. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazingly petty. Yeah. You know what's the ultimate example of this idea of mm. how science is like repressing knowledge? The ultimate example of this is the idea that the earth is flat. Right. That's like the, the, the king version of this, that yeah. every scientist everywhere has come together and they're all perpetuating this myth that the earth is a globe. I can't believe people still think the earth is flat. So many, so but many people think it. Sunk cost fallacy. I, I well, we'll have to get into the nature of belief off air. <laughs> well, we already got into it a bit. It's a big topic. Oh my god! But so, <sighs> I just can't. I can't. So in two thousand and two, DARPA's interest in hafnium weapons increased. <laughs> Yay, Colin! Yeah. And millions of dollars continued to be spent on the project during the early 2000s, despite the continued skepticism from, you know, places like Livermore and Argonne and basically everywhere. And Livermore never met a bomb they didn't like. Yeah, again, these aren't anti-bomb people. Right. No. They, these aren't people who are shying away from the weirdest ideas you've ever heard. big bombs. That's yeah. their thing. They like big bombs and they right. cannot lie. Right, exactly. And so then by late 2004, after... No demonstrable progress towards triggering, triggering hafnium isomers had been made. Congress ordered DARPA to end the hafnium bomb program. Poor Collins. He must have seen that as, like, a personal attack. Fortunately for him, a few years later, they got back into it again. Oh, good for Collins. Good for him. <laughs> 